I originally thought about mentioning this game alongside another rumination I did recently, uh, Blade Runner specifically, <clears throat> but thanks to timing and circumstance, I just didn't have time to go through Nier in time to push it up there, and I'd kind of rather have Nier be in JRPG month, so that's kind of why we're doing this here. Uh, but I mentioned that because at first glance, without actually having played the game, my first thought was that Nier was going to be all about uh, analysis of what it means to be a real person and blah, blah, blah. And while there are very vague details of that within the game, having gone through it, I can't actually say that that's something that really strikes me as predominant. What I find weirdest about this game... Oh, by the way, I will be spoiling this game. Obviously, it's a rumination analysis. That's what it says up there in the title. But I will also be mentioning things about Nier Automata and Drakengard, because they are relevant to this game. So if you're uncomfortable with those kind of spoilers, this is your cue to go ahead and hit the pause button, or the stop button, or the close button, or the, oh my god, nuke his computer button. Shoutouts to those of you who get it. <laughs> What I find interesting is this game feels like it doesn't belong. And in with the advantage of hindsight, looking at all the behind-the-scenes stuff, it makes perfect sense why that is. Because I see Drakengard, which was, which was incredibly bizarre and weird, and then I see Nier Automata, which, while weird, was kind of a logical follow-through of the consequences of Drakengard. Nier doesn't quite fit for me. I know that sounds strange, but the more I think about it, the more I think Nier doesn't belong in the continuity of the series. I'll be talking a little bit about this next week when we cover Nier Automata, a video I've actually already recorded because I already had a copy of Nier Automata, the playthrough. Um, I had to procure a copy of Nier. So we're, I'm, I'm doing these in reverse. The video you'll see next week I've already accomplished. But going through this game, it just doesn't feel like a logical progression of events, not thematically, not narratively, not in terms of how events would actually go. Now, this is funny because having read up on the makings of and the behind the scenes, it seems like Nier just kind of stumbled into happening. By contrast, Nier Automata was something that was planned out relatively far in advance. They already had the basic ideas and concepts while they were developing Nier, and then they got the assistance of other developers to work on some of the other side things so they could craft a little bit better. Basically, it was more of a planned excursion, and thus it makes more sense to me that it kind of follows logically. It feels like a more proper actual sequel, although, again, more of a 2 than a 3, but I digress. Because... There's several aspects of the story of Nier that really bother me. Um, I'm not actually going to cover those right now. I just mention it because when I say bother me, I don't just mean for the weird factor. Although there is certainly some weird factor going on in these. Of course they are. Have you seen Drakengard? But I mean in terms of, well, why did that work that way? Kind of moments, right? We'll cover those in a minute. But I'm bringing this up now because going through this game... I was like, okay, clearly the theme, right, is all about, you know, finding who you are, the reality of being human. Nope, totally wrong. Fling it out the window. Okay, um, maybe the theme is about determination. Nope, fling. Okay. Now, I've seen the interview about the September 11 attack, and near as I can tell, that's probably the closest thing to an intended theme in the story of the game. But I want to share a small story with you. i Beat the game, right? And I'm sitting here like... And that was, I don't know, two hours ago, three hours ago, something like that now. And I'm like... And you might wonder, why the gap? Well, I didn't have a theme for the game. 
And something about that was just bothering me. Like, it's not like you can't have a fictional work with no predominant theme. I mean, if it would be relatively easy for any game that was, for example, kind of thrown together or haphazardly made or, you know, they changed design concepts multiple times throughout the game and the story. All of these things are true for Nier. So maybe there was no theme. So I'm like, all right, there's got to be something else I could, I could pull from this. So I decided to go pull up an old speedrun which I had actually watched live once upon a time, and just kind of glanced through it at, at fast speed and see if there's anything I was missing, just to refresh my mind of the game in short order. And weirdly enough, I did come up with a theme. I really did, because pieces started to fall into place that I hadn't really considered before, because I usually don't think in that direction. I think the theme of Nier is the gameplay, which is why I'm bringing this up here. Or, to be more accurate, the theme of Nier is video games. This game, in almost every aspect, feels like a, a direct and deliberate deconstruction of video games as a concept. I mean, we've been making jokes about video games since the frickin' 90s at this point. You know, ever since uh, Flash and Newgrounds and all the old sites had started popping up in the early, o thousand, or early aughts. Is that how you're supposed to say that? Um, you know, we've been making fun of all the classic video game tropes. This feels like someone sat down and wrote down all the weird, strange little things video games do and said, let's make a game about that, and let's deconstruct that, and let's make the entire experience of playing this game about playing a game. And I know I'm explaining myself very strangely here. I'm not sure if I can phrase that any better. The obvious genre shifting is probably one of the most predominant examples of what I'm talking about. Uh, just to name a couple, there's the isometric RPG dungeon crawler section. Um, there's the railway shooter sections. Uh, there's the typical, you know, behind the back, you know, RPG sections. And then, of course, there's the uh, top-down Zelda sections. And that's just a couple of them. But it also reminded me of... Trying to think of how to phrase this. The idea... This is a little bit too meta for me. That's why I'm having trouble here. Because I like a little bit of meta in my fiction. But I feel like it's easy to overdose on it. I feel like this game goes a little bit too far on the meta button there. It feels like the game is all about trying to make you, the player, cognizant of playing a game. And that probably explains part of why I didn't really enjoy this game. I know, I know but it felt like I was constantly being pulled out of the experience. Don't mistake me, I'm really... <laughs> I know I call myself the lore runner, and most people presume that I don't give a damn about gameplay, but actually I'm very big on gameplay. Uh, there's a reason that that's literally half of my own rating system in the in-depth reviews and the premiere runs, and why I talk so often about gameplay concepts and mechanics. But I need more than just gameplay, because gameplay is merely half of a game for me. I need something to make me care. And nothing throughout the course of this game made me care about it. It was a fun game, but ultimately I have no plans to ever play it again, because why would I? What's the point? Now, that's not to say I didn't care about certain aspects of the story, but for example... Uh, well, you know what? Let's leave story for later, because I do want to talk about a couple other things gameplay-wise. Uh, first of all... I mentioned the whole gameplay concept thing. The side quests, which, which are absolutely everywhere. Oh, my God. Um, also fishing. All right. Hit A! Oh. Um, <laughs> board drifting. Can I get a hell yeah for board drifting? Anybody? No, probably not. Um, let's talk about the 
the nature of the side quests in gameplay and in lore. Because in gameplay, it's obvious. You get the money sometimes, you get a few additional snippets of content, and you usually get something else to do. Not always very significant. In fact, I would say a lot of these side quests are very Xenoblade-y, and I don't mean that as a positive thing. Um, delivering the mail at the post office comes to mind immediately on that one. But most of the story aspects of the side quests kind of slid nicely into the... <sighs> Nier feels like a player avatar. Now, I know that sounds like a duh, because he actually is the player avatar, but what I mean by that is more literally. You, the player, are here to play the game. That's your objective, right? That's what you care about, playing the game. So he does all this stuff because he has only one objective, saving Yona, right? You kind of see where I'm pulling this parallel here. Um, in my little character section here, which I'd like to quite brief later on in my notes, I have almost nothing to say about Nier because he is almost no real character to me. He might as well have been a silent protagonist from the way he's presented. Now, there are certain aspects of him that should have been voiced, and of course, Nier's Gestalt, Nier Gestalt, I'm just going to call him Nier Gestalt, uh, should have been voiced for f fairly obvious reasons, but near replicant, I mean, <laughs> he's, his purpose is he does things because you do things. I, I just kept getting that feeling throughout the whole thing. Again, I'm having trouble vocalizing this because it's just a little bit too meta for me, but I'll, I'll talk more about that uh, in a little bit. I also want to talk about the combat because the combat was, again, I played Automata first. So the combat was not as enjoyable, but then again, I tend to like the Platinum-style combat. But I did like one mechanic I wanted to touch on very briefly. One of the things I like that games do is they maintain a degree of momentum in their flow. Um, flow is the sixth aspect, it's actually right here, the sixth aspect of gameplay for me and the way I rate things. And flow is very important to determining how the player enjoys their experience of going through a game. You know, if you just have everything constantly... At a certain point, that's going to stop being enjoyable or interesting or intense, and it's going to start grading on you. It might start giving you a headache. Literally, that has actually happened to me and some of my viewers who watch me play through a certain game. I'm not going to name it. And um, at, at a certain point, you're just like, it loses its impact. You need a proper flow to gameplay. And this game does two things that really helps with the flow. First of all, there's several sections... Um, there's a fairly common beat, which basically goes town, overworld, dungeon, boss. Now, that's not literal, and of course, side quests and freedom of exploration kind of help spread that out a little bit, but that's the general flow of events. Um, nothing really tends to interrupt that except for that one time, uh, and so you're just bam, bam. And the other concept I want to talk about with regards to flow, which very much helps the flow of this game, is the combo mechanic, uh, building up your combo up to 50. That's awesome. It encourages you... The, com the mechanic I keep relating this to is in Doom 4, where you kill demons to get... Uh, what is it? <laughs> you kill demons to get uh, health, I think, or rage or something like that. Or, or maybe it's fuel. I don't know. Basically, it, there's this cycle. I, I haven't played Doom 4 in like a year and a half. Give me a break. But it's like you kill demons. Those give you something which allows you to refill, which allows you to kill demons in a specific way, which allows you to refill. And it basically creates this perfect cycle of, fl of flow so that you, the player, are encouraged to not stop unless you choose to. Same thing in here. 
uh, with with the combo mechanic, you're encouraged. And I, I felt myself kind of automatically like, no, I want to get my combo higher, especially on large shade bundles. It's like, because each additional combo increases your attack speed, which allows you to kill quicker and easier, which allows you to increase your attack speed and so forth and so on. It's kind of a self-perpetuating thing, of course, until you run out of things to hit. Also, Dark Blast is overpowered as hell. I'd just like to say that. <laughs> it's a little bit silly how useful that spell was, uh, but I digress. The last thing I want to talk about with regards to the gameplay is... I'm trying to kind of phrase this. So, I have been the... I, I, I touched on the genre thing earlier. I've been a champion of the idea of multi-genre games for a long time. Um, sometimes games will pull this off. You know, Saints Row 4... I will mention that next week uh, when it comes to Nier Automata. You know, the idea of trying to shift into a completely different play style as kind of a breather or a break or just to vary things up for the player. Now, what this game does is it doesn't quite do that. Nier mostly is just varying between different modes, and it does it in a fairly clever way because the genre is more shifted by the level design than by the game itself. They don't literally put you into a different engine. This isn't like playing Stellaris and then landing a ground invasion and then zooming into like an RTS section, which would basically be a different engine. No, this is more like using the same engine but varying out like... The Diablo sections are a great example. When you get to the Diablo sections, it's still the same game. It's just the camera zooms out, and they change how the level is literally designed so that it now looks like this kind of you know top-down isometric thing, and making it so that the genre has effectively shifted, even though the gameplay has effectively remained the same. It's very clever. I want to give special props to that for the way they pull that across. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and talk about... Let, let's, let's start with negatives. <laughs> Why the Millennium Gap? Now, I did... Uh, I, I freely admit I missed the why of that. They vaguely imply that the process just hasn't concluded for whatever reason after a millennia, uh, what is it, 1,023 years or something like that? I forget, I forget the exact amount, but they name it. They say how long it's been. Um, but, it's, you know, it's been 1,000 years... Why has it been a thousand years? Now, I know I have a bit of a reputation for being the guy who constantly flaunts or, or flogs writers for doing the large terrain thing, but what I mean in this case is why is there that kind of a time gap at all? What, what purpose does it serve out of character or in character? Because from my understanding of the process, the idea is, okay, these people are infected, we've got to separate their, their, their consciousness, their souls, whatever you want to call that, and then make a new body for them, and then they remerge. Why does this process take longer than, let's say, at absolute most, 20 years? And the only reason I'm giving, like, 20 years is, 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 is like a, an estimate, maybe more like 18 or something. It's like, okay, separate you, new body, and in you go. I don't understand why there needs to be a gap there. And I, I'll admit my ignorance on this. Um, like I said, I did some research on this to try and find an answer to this one just overwhelming question that was bugging me the entire playthrough. Um, if any of you have an answer, please feel free to share. I'm sure I'll get plenty of vitriolic comments telling me how stupid I was because it's so obvious that it's because of the rotation of the sun or whatever. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know why the gap. Um, I also... I, I do have a theory as to why the gap, if I'm to be completely honest with you. I feel like they sat down and started making this game, and then they decided we should connect it to Drakengard. And then they decided, we should make there be a big twist in the game. 
And I feel, to be completely blunt, like the story suffers from that. Um, it feels artificial rather than a natural progression thing. Um, to use a movie example, it feels more like Sixth Sense, where the entire point of the movie is the twist, rather than something like, well, I'm not going to name an example, but another movie where the twist is more of a natural byproduct of the way the story is progressing. Um, oh my gosh, you know, it's a thousand years, and they're the actually humans, and you're the bad guy. And Okay. I, <laughs> what's the point of that? It, it, it kind of partially goes back to that whole near being a basic non-character to me thing. If anything, the biggest trait I could ascribe to the nears, I should say it that way, is that the near replicant seems a little bit more human, whereas the near gestalt seems completely robotic. Now, if you're paying attention, that shouldn't work that way. And yet, at the same time... That is completely logical to me. Even though the near Gestalt was someone who was, you know, a person, a human being prior to there, um, he then locked himself away in his castle and did nothing for a thousand years. It's <laughs> a long time. But even if it had only been the 18 years or whatever that I proposed, that's still a hellaciously huge amount of time. What I'm trying to say is that even a completely normal human being who is put in isolation for a huge period of time, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever looked into studies on human psychology or, or how the brain adapts to such situations, but isolation does really, really bad things to a human brain. So, to me, it actually makes sense that Nier's Gestalt would, for lack of a better way to put this, degenerate. By contrast, Nier's Replicant shares most of the same general... Um, personality quirks, his uh, fixation, if you will, but he has actually been interacting with other people on a regular basis. He has, you know, he has his daughter, he had his wife, there's the thing with the android, he didn't know she was an android. You know, there's all these little tidbits about him and his interactions with the village, who of course trust and care about him and, and you know, respect him. He's had a life, basically. So to me, it makes perfect sense that the replicant would be more human than the Gestalt. But again, I feel like that's more of a logical progression of their environment rather than anything to do with which one's the real one or which one is the real life or whatever. However, I do want to mention that Yona the Gestalt willingly gives up her life to save Yona the replicant. Part of why I mention that, even though it turns out that was a terrible idea because it leads to the extinction of all humanity, um, but part of why I mention that is because I really feel like Yona the Gestalt really didn't have much left to go off for the same reason, that she had just been in stasis this whole time, and she was already starting to degenerate, remember? She was already starting to relapse. So Yona, by contrast, the replicant, had actually had some kind of a life that she had lived. So the idea that Yona the Gestalt would willingly give up her existence for Yona the Replicant's life, that makes perfect sense to me. Now, obviously not all the Gestalts are like this. This is why I say it, I don't really feel like this is a thematic thing, because it's all environmental. Um, we see plenty of Gestalts who have something approximating lives, who interact with people in a, in a positive way even, and who have no problem living or act acting or whatever. But what I really... What I really want to know is why the thousand-year gap? I'm trying to fig figure out another way to phrase this, and I'm failing at it. So I'm just going to be as blunt as I can. 
what precipitated that? I mean, it's not like this, the project hasn't been managed the whole time. The androids have been doing their thing. It's even been confirmed, in my research, that the, uh, the androids have been perpetuating the lie of birth of new replicants by switching replicant data to a new replicant. <laughs> so, huh? And why... Is near Gestalt the one, like, good, or not good, that's the wrong word, uh, the one completely properly done Gestalt? Why is he the one that's, like, the, the perfect Gestalt? And the other ones have the shade problem. And why is he the one that they decided to tie all the Gestalts to? For those of you not aware, with the Jada Lord's death, um, all the Gestalts uh, effectively relapse and cessate. Which also means that without the androids, all the replicants die. So everyone dies. <laughs> and I don't mean that in like the usual sense. I mean, this is the extinction of both life forms by the, after the, the, the results of the end of the game. Was that the point, that everyone dies? I mean, I know that Yoko Taro, and I hope I'm saying that right, kind of tendency is towards happy endings, but what? I, I'm getting off topic. <clears throat> so... One of the other things I want to mention is the the grimoires. Now, we barely see anything with grimoire, grimoire noir. God, bleh. Um, the one that's with Gestalt uh, near. The one that's... Uh, we, we get little hints and tidbits of the fact that he's thinking about maybe kind of ruling over what's left of humanity when this whole project's done. Which kind of makes me raise an eyebrow. Like, like, what exactly makes him think he's qualified? I guess he does have literal magic. I also have to admit, I love the idea of the grimoires. Because the, the implication slash stated fact is that the humans were able to reverse engineer magic from the dragon. From back in Dragonguard. That's probably the one connecting point between Dragonguard and Nier that not only makes sense, but in my opinion actually improves Nier from a storytelling perspective. And hell, even from a gameplay perspective. Because now we get spells! Um, <laughs> I mention this because, as weird as this is going to sound, that makes perfect sense to me. In my opinion, with the level of technological advancement we have access to now, in real life, if a dragon, or a mage, or a chunk of mat huge materia, or a big old thing of magicite, or an esper, or whatever from whatever fictional setting was actually able to legitimately, literally manifest here in the real world, and we were to reverse engineer that thing and, and look at it, I legitimately believe that we could understand how to basically procure magic from such magical source. That makes sense to me. And so I love the idea that we basically are like, okay, this is how the pacts work, because that's a big thing in Drakengard. Now, why don't we make a thing where we have, like, pseudo-pacts, where instead of, like, you know, you uh, sacrifice something in exchange for the soul convergence thing, why don't we make it so that we uh, use a artificial construct to generate this same soul transference energy, hence the grimoires. Uh, that, I like that. I like that it makes sense. It is also almost a little bit too convenient, though, because Illidan... I'm sorry. Grimoire uh, Vice... <laughs> we break the seal on him. Why was he sealed? And it's like, ah, we, we have you now. And we do it in such a wonderfully violent fashion that he just happens to have amnesia. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Amnesia is a very, very, very common trope in fiction, especially in JRPGs. But 
I feel like in this one case, it probably would have been better if Vice didn't have amnesia and was just lying through his teeth. I, I, I like the idea more that Vice was someone who... I hope I'm saying that right. Vice... I have trouble with that word. Um, was someone who knew about the truth, knew about his purpose, knew about his past, and was basically just going along with this because, as the events of the game show, you know, we're reaching a point where now we have to start moving near towards a conclusion point and get near Gestalt back into near, which will then start the whole process of everything re-emerging or whatever, and then things go twisty side up. I like the idea more of that Vice was completely on board with this, but during his experiences and interactions with near replicant, he gets to the point where he actually cares about him, about the individual, about the entity that will be destroyed by Near Gestalt, assuming the process is concluded, and thus chooses not to go along with it, which is funny, because that's kind of what he does anyways, right? So I, I think that would have worked better than having amnesia, uh, my opinion. I should probably mention really quick that for obvi this should be obvious, but I played Near Gestalt, not Near Replicant. Now, I know that sounds like a complete contradiction to everything I've been saying, but what I mean by that is I obviously played the English version, um, which is, for those of you who have, or are aware of both versions or have played both versions, that is near Gestalt. Uh, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I double-checked this fact a couple of times, and I jotted down a note saying near Gestalt at the top there. Um, you know, I was playing Father near, uh, the grittier American ear near, which is funny to me. <laughs> I kinda, I'm not sure I would have preferred Brother near better or not, but either way... Um, I find it fascinating that they basically decided to make a second version of the game, which is not completely different, but there are some gameplay changes. Uh, the roll distance comes to mind immediately. And obviously some significant tonal changes between the two. Um, the American-y version is a whole lot darker. And maybe that's part of why I found Near the Replicant to be less interesting than Near the Replicant would be in Near Replicant. You can see why this naming schema... <laughs> um... Because I, and, I'd, and I'd love to hear from you guys. Maybe, maybe Near Brother is a lot more interesting as a character than Near Father. So let me know in the comments for those of you who actually played that. Um, so we talked about the Millennium Gap. We talked about the Grimoires. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the backstory stuff. So I mentioned... So, okay... <laughs> This is kind of a consequence of doing these videos out of order, but I mentioned over in my Automata video that you'll be seeing next week my theory that the Watchers might still have some impact in Nier Automata. However, based on the backstory of Nier, that's actually impossible because they actually get rid of all the Masso, which I hope I'm pronouncing right, um, as, as a result of the Legion War. And yet at the same time, the consequences of being Legion infected have almost a direct one-to-one -one parallel with being affected with the, the Logic Virus. So maybe it's not as completely gone as it sounds, or maybe this is just another in, in attempt by the Watchers to influence. I mean, in the backstory of Drakengard, going back another game, the, re the whole reason the Watchers are in interfering is because they are disgusted and upset, upset with humanity, and they need to be wiped out and crushed and destroyed, and that's why they keep screwing with them. Because humans are terrible. Um, but I bring this up because one of the things that I find weird and horrible is that is, is the very concept of the white chlorination uh, syndrome. Now, the game never details this, and I realized thinking about it that it can't work how I originally thought. What I was originally assuming is you get some of those masso particles on you, and then it's like, you must make a choice. You will die instantly and basically become saltified, or you, you agree to be infected with the logic virus. I mean, the Legion virus. I mean, 
you make a pact, basically, and you serve the Watchers and you fight as part of the Legion. Based on the readings and the descriptions within this game and going through it, uh, I don't think that's actually true. It makes it seem like you get infected, and then the symptoms very slowly progress, and, they, and humanity discovered ways to slow those symptoms, and then when it reached a critical point, then you had to make the decision. Now that makes sense to me, because in my original version of this, the whole Gestalt replicant project makes no sense. Like, okay, we'll separate people, and then we'll give them new bodies. But if they're infected and instantly have to make that choice, then there's no saving them because they instantly have to make the choice, right? So uh, the idea that they would separate Gestalts and then, you know, <laughs> get rid of all this crap and then put them back in the replicant, that makes a bit more sense. Problem is, that could explain the gap, but that was done years and years and years ago. Uh, they give the exact year in the game. Forgive me for not remembering it. Um, but they've already, they've defeated the Legion, they actually have ejected all the massive particles from the world, or at least they think they have. So that's not the reason for the delay. Anyways, I also want to mention, though, because this is the part that really got my brain going, how much potential there is for a society that regularly uses replicants and gestalts. Or is it gestalts? I think it's gestalts. Huh. Well, I say GIF, so I suppose I'm the worst person to talk about this. But anyways, one of the things that's mentioned is Tyron, the one, the, the shade that's possessing, uh, hold up, Kaine. <laughs> I have a pronunciation guide right here. I actually pronounced Emil incorrectly in my video you're going to see next week. So apologies in advance for saying Emil, Emil. Um, but Kaine, uh... The tyrant, the one that's possessing her, he is someone whose replicant was actually destroyed and non-generated. The replicant data was erased as a penalty and a punishment for everything that he did back when you know he deserted, right? Um, that concept, for some reason, just really stuck with me. Because there's so much more you can do with a culture and a society when the culture and society literally has the ability to separate a person's soul and then build them a new body. You know, like the, like the idea of you being very protective or possessive of that replicant data. Or what is required to keep the Gestalts running. Or what it is that, you know, they can, the Gestalts can do that, that normal humans can't in ways that could be designed. And new, new methods of justice or new methods of social interaction. Um, possibilities of, you know, basically, you know, the, the, the more wealthy or the more politically affluent being able to uh, effectively artificially remove their own soul, destroy their body, bake a new body that's younger or better or even completely different, and then reattach themselves to it. There's a lot of concepts there that I really wish they'd done something with. It, it sparks to mind a whole different, uh, almost alien science fiction society that the game only barely just scratches the very surface of because it's just a, one note of a very distant part of a backstory that basically is irrelevant to the events of the game. Um, and I would love to, to be able to dig into those kind of concepts. And so I'm, I've decided to steal all these ideas now in the Imperium. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I do love the concepts, and I'd love to hear if any of you have any other like ideas or concepts... Uh, implementations of concepts that could work in this case with regards to the whole Gestalt replicate thing. So, uh, oh right, I'm, I started talking about this earlier and I kind of derailed. So I mentioned Noir and I mentioned Vice. I have a very small question for you. Do you think that Vice would be just as delusiony of grand jury 
grand jury, if not for the fact that his interactions with Mir. My point in bringing that up is a grimoire can rather logically presume that they are a superior life form. It's one of those matter-of-fact things. And thus, it kind of makes a weird amount of sense to me that Noir would be the kind of person that would say, yes, I am better, stronger, I literally have magic. Other people can generally only have magic through me, or something like me. You know, if you were the one mage in a world of mundanes, well, Harry Potter effect will get into account, the masquerade, but point remaining, <laughs> the idea there is that you could naturally assume uh, aspirations towards power. Vice never really does. And, I, and like I said, I personally really feel that that's mainly because he's Illidan, but also because of the fact that he had his interactions with the party over the course of the game. Um, so, I have nothing to say about Nier. <laughs> At all, really, that I haven't already said. But I do find it interesting that Nier effectively forms the glue for the party in a way that isn't really... It almost feels out of character. Again, this goes back to that whole player avatar thing, the idea that the player is the one keeping the party together. Emil and Kaine. Keep checking down to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> I... Uh, Emil and Kaine, I'm going to discuss them together because I don't have much to say about either separately. Both of them, to me, feel like people who are, thanks to environmental circumstance, end up being ostracized and isolated to a point where both of them adopt their own basic, uh, let's call them, methods of avoidance. <laughs> Methods of coping might actually be a better word. In order to deal with that, Kaine is, of course, a brash, loud, cursy kind of a person. Very, very crass. And uh, also under constant threat from Tyron, which doesn't help matters. And then there's uh, Emil, who initially doesn't have much. He's just got the blindfold. But later, uh, as he develops the new form, as he interacts with number six... You know, that, that whole thing kind of becomes his new uh, adaption method. Probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire game is the scene where Nier hugs Emil after he has been skeletized, for lack of a better terminology. Because, this is why I'm discussing both characters as one, because both of them feel like different shades of the same concept. It's one thing to be at peace with what you are, and it's one thing to be at peace with who you are. But I feel like both Emil and Kaine, need, over the course of the game and into the endings, uh, need to reach a point where they are somehow able to accept both. Because Kaine is really not that terrible of a person. This is, this is established many times. Uh, she is not that crude. She's not that crass. She's not that evil or violent or anything. She is just under constant threat of gun and, of course, has the layers of masks going on for her. That is who she is, and being able to accept that is something that she has to kind of walk a tightrope on because of the threat of Tyron, whatever. Um, but then we have Emil, who is, of course, a soft-spoken, kind-hearted boy who also... I, I want to stress this because it's too easy for a character like him to be naive. But I don't feel like he is. I never got that opinion from him or that perspective from him. Instead, I see someone who is not so much innocent as idealistic. The difference being an innocent person will say, here, let me help you, with no thought that the person they're helping might hurt them. An idealistic person says, here, let me help you, knowing they might hurt them, but hoping that they won't. 
That's the difference right there. It's a very, very important difference in my opinion. And it kind of shows because he's not a weakling and he's not a coward. Um, well, obviously he does have, have very human, ironically, uh, feelings, emotions, um, presentation he's the kind of person who is willing to try and work past that and do more i mean the fact that that he's able to fight off so many of the aliens single-handedly is certainly significant i would say and you know there's a reason he became such an awesome character uh, later as well in near automata but and uh, i i guess there's no but i suppose Terminate sentence, <laughs> you know, because both of these characters are victims. They are victims of environment. They are victims of circumstance. They are victims of social norms. They are victim of the people around them. One of them is a hermaphrodite, and one of them looks like a skeleton or happens to petrify people upon looking at them. Now, both of these are fantastic examples, things that can only really exist in fiction. <sighs> Let me rewind that sentence. Emile's examples can only exist in fiction... Kainé's obviously can exist in real life. Um, I suppose it's hard to adapt to the whole shade part of things as well. So the shade part of things for her life can only exist in fiction. That's where I was going with that. Because Kainé's her, uh, he, she thing uh, is not actually... How do I put this? Um, to me, I feel like that was only half of what victimized her. I shouldn't say only. God, I feel like I'm treading on a minefield here. I hate the current environment in real life. I feel like she was... Half of her victimization was from what she is, the hermaphrodite thing. And half of her victimization was from who she is because she is not a bloodthirsty, ridiculous killer. But in both cases, it was a case of victimization. In the first, by the people around her who looked down on her. And the second, by Tyron, who was infesting her. Same situation with Emil. Emil was someone who was victimized in what he was, thanks to being the weapon, you know, it was being crafted, dragon, reverse engineering, blah, blah, blah. And then who he was because of the nature of trying to understand and comprehend that the, the kid underneath there is a decent person in spite of the fact that he's a horrible skeleton. Am I making any sense? Both characters had to overcome their preconceptions, their victim, the, the victimization that was put upon them, and the circumstances surrounding them that led to both who and what. And it could be argued whether or not they succeed at that, because they all die. But <laughs> I like to think that they do. Um, I mean, Emile's head bouncing off, right? Kind of pricks up the tear, right? Also, this is really quick, but hearing Laura Bailey just cuss like a sailor is just really weird. Is that just me? It just felt odd going through the whole thing like... Anyways, so I hope that I haven't been blasted by everyone in the universe. Um, but I'm looking at my notes here. That victimization thing is the last thing I want to talk about, so let's go ahead and put my notes away here. We're good. What I want to talk about is... An environment of circumstance. Now, I actually like writing stories like this. They're, they're kind of hard to craft. It's a story that doesn't have a bad guy, basically. Um, it's a story in which there is no big evil villain named Makarov, space sorcerer, who is behind everything, right? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those. I'm not one of those elitist snobs who tries to say that, oh, just because it's been done before, it's bad. No. But I do like it when you have a story where it's one side versus another side, and possibly versus another side, and there's no real, like, Machiavellian Palpatine or Voldemort or whatever behind the scenes pulling all the strings. 
I enjoy the fact that Gestalt Nier is no more evil than Replicant Nier. Now, I say that very specifically because a very strong argument piece could be stated that both of them are evil, but that is a debatable case in both circumstances. Um, and that's kind of the point. You know, the idea that perspective matters. Uh, belief in whether or not you are right can allow you to do things that would be considered very horrible. And I feel like this is the closest thing leading towards the, what is probably, this is a presumption on my part, the original Aesop of the game, because the originally this game was supposed to be a tale, and lots of that shows in the way the construction of the world and the setting functions. Um, like Facade, great example. Can I just say really quick, by the way? Uh, facade was awesome. I, I, I've mentioned before the idea of the Gestalt replicant thing is great from a world building, from a cultural perspective. Facade is awesome. The rules, the people have to keep track of the rules, the, the implementation of rules because we don't know what to do. Like, like the whole slaves turning into the, the, the people there. That, that whole thing was just great. I wish I had more to say about it. Um, although I do love that Nier manages to basically implement a new rule thanks to the rules, which allows them to break the rules. Because that is actually very logical. Logic can actually defeat itself. A mathematical equation can equate out to zero. That's kind of the point of logic. So I love that. I love the way that's presented. Anyway, anyway. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously the bad guy could be argued to be the giant, right? You know, the Watchers are the bad guy. But they were defeated forever ago, right? The Legion's gone. The mass of particles are, are erased. The dragon's not even there anymore, and whatever magic has been extracted from it doesn't even, like, is, is not directly connected. At least there's no implication that it is. So there's no villain here. There's just a bunch of people. And I think that is probably the thing I like most about this game's story. Well, it didn't quite catch me, and again, I found myself being pulled out of it constantly. I love the fact that the big twist did at least service that function. That this is a RPG deconstruction, like I said earlier. I hope you've enjoyed my incredibly terrible thoughts on this game, and I'll be seeing you next week for the video I've already recorded for Nier Automata. Peace.